Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Lynn, in the back, okay? My name is Deb Hastings, and I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and we're really uh, happy to welcome you all here this morning. Uh, I, um, this is a very special session of Nursing Grand Rounds, and you'll learn a little bit more about who is here and uh, what he's going to be discussing with us in just a few minutes. But of course, before we begin, I have some accreditation requirements to share with you. Um, for those who are here uh, present today, please be sure to sign in just outside the door at the registration table. You must attend at least 80% of this program to receive credit. This educational activity carries one contact hour. We do have folks viewing online, and for those of you who are viewing from your computers, please feel free to email Judy Langhans with any questions you may have throughout the presentation. She will be monitoring her email. To receive credit, you do need to contact Judy within one hour of the com completion of the presentation, stating that you were present in the educational activity, we need your name, degree, and zip code. Judy's email address is judith.m, as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online evaluation shortly after the program. We do value your feedback regarding this program and invite you, in fact, encourage you to take a few minutes to complete the evaluation. Your contact hours will be posted to your online transcript within about two weeks' time. There are instructions on how to access your online transcripts um, uh, either by the sign-in sheet here or you can contact Judy directly for that information. And finally, please silence your cell phones and pagers out of respect for our speaker. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So, without further ado, I am really pleased to present our Chief Nursing Officer, Gay Landstrom, who will introduce our special guest. Gay? Delighted that you all um, came today to hear David. I'm so excited to hear him myself. Uh, David Pickham completed his basic and graduate education at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Australia. And he has a lovely accent. <laughs> and received his doctorate from the University of California, San Francisco, under the mentorship of Dr. Barbara Drew. He is currently the Director of Research, Patient Care Services at Stanford HealthCare and is a Clinical Assistant Professor in the Stanford School of Medicine. In addition to this, he is also Adjunct Faculty at the University of California, San Francisco and the University of Newcastle, Australia. He is a busy man. His clinical background is in emergency nursing and I know that will speak to a number of you here today and has practiced in Australia, Canada and the U.S. His research interests are in optimizing physiologic monitoring and health innovation. Please join me in welcoming David Pickham. Thank you. So can everybody hear me okay? Is this good? Yes? Yes, okay. So the, um, the best thing about being Australian, if you don't like what I say, you may like how I say it. So that's, <laughs> so that's a plus. Um, really excited to be here and appreciate the invitation. I think we're at exactly the same points where we're trying to develop uh, nursing research and the capacity for nursing research in an in a institution that's really dominated by uh, other professions. 
So just quickly, the building capacity for research, I just want to understand who's in the room. Do we have any DNP, uh, people with DNPs here? PhDs, masters? In 10 days. 10 days? <laughs> I think that counts, right? Yeah. And uh, staff nurses, bachelors, diplomas, fantastic. So a lot of what we're trying to develop is to support the staff nurses. So everything we do from PhD, the DNPs, is really supporting the staff nurses because from Stanford's perspective about value, that's what's valuable to the patients, the clinical staff. So everything we hear in developing this nursing research and research centers and things is really supporting clinical staff providing care to patients. So that's an important thing to start with. It's a pretty simple um, presentation I have, if this works. Maybe it's not. It's not a simple presentation. <laughs> How does this work? Yeah, just left on oh, the right one. The Got it. I don't have a PhD in lasography. <laughs> so a couple of things we just want to go over. The objectives say very simple. We just want to discuss the organizational structure at Stanford. It's pretty similar to Dartmouth, to which I can understand. We want to identify the challenges associated with developing a nursing research program in an academic medical center not supported by a school of nursing. And I think that's really important. We also want to discuss the examples of the research and innovation that we're doing at Stanford, which is sort of leading to what we're doing. And I think the big takeaway here is that initially we thought in our position we're going to set out to do a big center, we're going to have nursing research in this you know, brick and mortar and plant the flag and say we are here and this is our space. And in doing the initial um, needs assessment and discussing it with the faculty around, that wasn't the best take. And what we learned is really they saw that as an abrasive thing, where they sort of dominate, this is their space, and who's coming into their space. So we've, we've sort of uh, pivoted a little bit, and hopefully through this presentation you'll see what that pivot looks like. So first we've got to start where, where is California? So everyone knows this. <laughs> hopefully this isn't new. But you'll see California is this big state, it's one of the largest states. Importantly, there's twice as many people in California than there is in all of Australia. So I'm feeling pretty claustrophobic when I'm there. And San Francisco is just midway up here, and it's on a peninsula, like your thumb. And where Stanford's situated over here is right at the bottom of this, uh, where the thumb is, down the bottom here. And you see Stanford is really uh, sur surrounded by all the tech giants. So Facebook is literally 500 feet down the road from my house. You've got NASA, you've got Google, Genentech, Oracle, YouTube. You've got a million graduate students who left mum and dad with a suitcase trying to make it big in Silicon Valley. So anything that's really tech or tech-related is really around this area. So it's heavily populated, and you know that with the real estate prices and things going through the roof, you can't afford to live. So that's us, that's where we're situated. So Stanford University really is unique in that we have this innovation hub that we can really leverage. And I think from our position in nursing at Stanford, that's something that we really look to. But this is what we're really talking about today. And you'll see this is our main campus, this is our quad. So Stanford University, you know, everyone's sort of heard about it. It's been around for a while. We have Stanford Medicine, which is our master brand. And that's the School of Medicine. And within that master brand, we have a children's hospital, which is uh, Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. And we have the adult hospital, which is Stanford Healthcare. And within Stanford Healthcare, we have many clinics. Now, importantly, University of California, San Francisco is just up the road. And it was only a few years ago, 10 years or so, that we were going to merge with UCSF. But we broke away and we have a new CEO and now Stanford Healthcare is really a vibrant uh, place. 
So one of the things I want to show is, you know, the weather's beautiful there. I was supposed to be here in February at the time that I was bounced due to bad weather. This was at Santa Cruz. This is my little girl. So we have a, I was just telling Gay about this, but every presentation I do, she expects herself to be in there somewhere. <laughs> so, uh, and she picks what photos and where she can go. And according to her, all I do is boring meetings. So this helps <laughs> liven it up. And she'll even say, can you ask him if I can have more than one photo? <laughs> so, but this is the weather when we got bounced uh, in January. And then my in-laws live in Buffalo, New York. So I know a little bit about it. So we sent that photo on the same day they sent this photo. So Stanford is known for having great weather. And where we live in Redwood City is climate best by government test. So it's got the most moderate temperatures throughout the US. And it's the least number of rainfall days. So it's a beautiful place to be. And it hurts me to say that to you guys <laughs> in this weather. And I was just saying, in, a, um, in the elevator today, someone was really flustered. And I just said hello. And she said, oh, I jumped a midnight flight to skate the weather from uh, uh, Washington. And I couldn't believe you come here to escape the weather. So <laughs> it puts it in perspective. So this is Stanford. For effect, I don't know why that happened. <laughs> so who are we? So similar to you guys, we're a nonprofit academic medical center. We're licensed for about 600 beds, about 100 clinics, and you'd see our emergency visits around 60,000. And we have a lot of the similar awards you guys have. You know, most wired. We have a magnet um, accreditation joint commission. Uh, we have. Um, two cancer centers, one we just opened up in the South Bay. And in 2018, we're opening up this brand new hospital. So we talk about tremendous growth. 10 years ago, we're almost merging with UCSF and being swallowed into that health system. A new CEO raised a ton of money. Now we've got a new neuroscience center. We have a new hospital. The kids' hospital is also developing a new hospital. So there's tremendous growth across Stanford Healthcare. So it's a great time for us as nurses to add to that growth. If we're going to be leading edge care and be the best in the nation, how can we participate? And that's sort of what we're, what we're running on. So we also have these centers for excellence. And this is key to understand for where we want to go for nursing research, because we know what's important to the hospital and also to the master brand, which is Stanford Medicine. And they concentrate on a couple of things. And this is this cancer care, cardiovascular care, neurosciences, orthopedic services, surgical services, and transplantation. And they don't just concentrate on doing these types of surgeries. They want the most complex patients they can get. They want the ones who have been turned away as having no hope because they think they can value the most from what we offer at Stanford. So that really complex uh, patient population. And we're one of the only um, level one trauma flight programs in the Bay Area as well. So that's us. We're, from a nursing's perspective, we, we're really blessed on, uh, from a Stanford's point of view, about how educated our nurses are. So the Institute of Medicine sort of has a goal that we should have at least 80% of all nurses have a bachelor's degree. So we've surpassed that already um, at Stanford, not through too much fault other than just being in the right place at the right time. We have a lot of great institutions. We also have a, a brand what um, people want to come to. So we also take in the eager beavers from all over the country are coming to Stanford to work. So we're really blessed for that. So we have about 40% have specialty certification, and that's a big push as we go into our recertification for our magnet. And we have over 220 advanced practice providers, and that's continuing to grow. Now, the bottom here, what we have is our nursing model, and it's based on Watson Science of Caring. 
And you'll see that the two hands with our values here, but the patient's center, and we want to have effect across the world. So we, we have all these things that we want to focus on, a collaborative environment, education and research, care delivery and clinical practice, professional nursing role, and that's been a massive push with Kramer. We actually had uh, Kramer come out and talk about professional role development. You know, what is the scientist's role? What is the professional practice role? What are your responsibilities? How do you become a professional? Uh, that's been a massive push at Stanford. That's part of professional development, and then we have this concept of shared governance, where we just restructured all our shared governance to really remarkably, within a year, we just got rid of every, every single council, and we restructured it so that it was more focused on the clinicians and bedside autonomy. So that was a big push. We presented that at Magnet last year, and we're working on a couple of papers for that. So the key from this is that nurse administration and myself were not working separately. So I need to work out what's important to nurse administration. And from a research point of view, I have to work out how to support them and then what their goals are. So we're going for magnet reaccreditation. How do I participate in that? And that's been a big push. So this is more about what I sort of come into. And what I want to do is flip this around. I'm going to start at the bottom. And hopefully you guys will sort of have uh, an understanding of this already. We have Stanford University and we have Stanford Medicine. And you'll see Stanford Medicine, I've made a, a large box. <laughs> and that's not by accident. Stanford Medicine is really a dominant force across our campus. It's one of the largest funded um, groups within the university, and there's a, there's a lot of practicing physicians. We also have this divide, which has uh, happened between the hospitals and the university, where there's practice is done at the, at the hospital, and research is done at the university. And that's a divide that a lot of people want to keep it that way. So I've made it a little bit permeable here for a reason, because we're starting to break that down. But when you have a divide like that, what happens for all these allied health groups, pharmacy, respiratory therapy, nursing, a lot of these groups can't participate in the research aspects of, um, of the mission of Stanford Medicine. And that's a big issue, right? So how do we support that? So when I came on board back in 2013, I've been there a bit over a year and a half, we had some turnover in that position. The position was brand new, only a couple of years old, and already they had a director who had came and gone, and they also had an interim director twice, before and after. So I came into a program thinking, I'll go in and do research and it'll be great. And then you look at the program when we get there, and there's a lot of these institutional barriers. So we went from doing research to really doing uh, structural projects, trying to improve the ability to do research at, um, at Stanford. So we did have a nurse scientist who was a stable sort of position at the hospital, and which was really great in developing our Bay Area consortium. So we focused on evidence-based practice because there wasn't too much to focus on because we couldn't do the research. So everyone, you guys have evidence-based practice at Dartmouth? So everyone's aware of evidence-based practice models and things like that. We had a consortium with UCSF where we had eight to 10 nurses at a time would go through and learn how to do evidence-based practice and then develop a small practice change and then go out into the world and that was it. <laughs> there wasn't anything to grow from that. So with 2,500 nurses, having 10 people benefit, it's really not a great approach. So nursing research at Stanford has really been um, blunted by the ability to do anything beyond those small um, tests of change. So in, in addition to my position, we also had space planning. We're building a new hospital. Every conference room is getting taken away and put in with a new assistant or a new IT member or new someone else. So space has been a really big issue. So we couldn't find one center to say, this is where nursing is, come see us. So we're working against that. And we also share an admin assistant. 
So it's a difficult position to sort of come into, but also exciting, because when you're, when you're starting here, you can only go here. Technically, you could come here if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're a donkey. Hopefully, that doesn't happen. So this is what I did. And in typical form, what we sort of jumped into is understanding what it is in some sort of theoretical way. We want to do some sort of research on what is it that we're actually doing. So I performed a needs assessment. And basically, this was um, just modified off what the Emergency Nurses Association, again, in my backyard, which I sort of knew existed. <laughs> From the Emergency Nurses Association, they did a needs assessment of their members. And this is an article that Garrett Chan wrote. So does anyone know Garrett Chan? It's surprising. He, every time I go somewhere, they know Garrett. Um, so Garrett, Garrett developed this um, and modified it from another article. But what we want to basically get is organization, unit, and individual preparation for research. So you see some of the questions. And it's just simply a five-point scale from disagree to agree. And you see the respondents. We had 103. This isn't overly scientific. I didn't set out to you know, make sure I captured everyone. What I want to do is just get the, the pulse of the organization in some sort of structured way. So I split it up into a qualitative piece and a quantitative piece. And in my new role, I went to every nurse manager and had a structured questionnaire. And I basically said, tell me about your unit. Tell me about your patient population. Tell me about your nurses. If you were going to talk about what your uh, top three things are to work on, what would they be? Who in your unit are the champions for research? So we did that qualitative piece, and then I stepped out into the unit, and I provided this survey to just a convenient sample. Five or six people I could find gave them the survey just to see, see if that sort of replicated what we sort of thought. And it's very simple, and I'll go through some of the answers here. So from an organizational level, we want to ask them, do you see it as your role to perform research? Do nurses have an interest in this? We also want to say, do you have the autonomy to make a practice change? And they're two really important things. So just to, there's going to be a few of these things. So you'll see three is sort of neutral. That's like, eh, those sort of things. Disagree would be one and two. Agree would be four and five. So when we say, I have the authority to change practice, it's great to see that the majority agree with this. And when you see as my role, when you take away the people who just say, eh, you see the majority of people say yes. So from an organization level for nurses, they see it as important for their role and that they have the authority. And when we look at the unit level, we say to ourselves, is it easy to gain admin project support, resources, and approval? So look at number three. What do you think that sells you from number three? Up in this top corner. The fact that so many people say neither. They haven't tried. They haven't tried. That's right. So it's not to say one way or the other. They're just saying they may have heard. They may haven't had the opportunity. They just haven't tried. So they can't answer that question. So that's really an eye-opening sort of thing to find. But of the people who have, the majority would say that it's hard. Do I have sufficient time to read research? Again, take away three, and you'll see the majority is around two and one if you add them up. So disagree, they don't have the time. And we all would recognize that's consistent, right? I have sufficient time to implement research findings in care. Number four, I think, is a little bit biased because there's a lot of CNSs who are involved in this, and their job is to implement this. So we'd have to pull out uh, who actually answered that question. I have contact with knowledgeable colleagues to discuss research. And this is what I like to see. So number three, take that out. You see four and five. So people, if you think back to organization, say that they have the role authority. And when you ask them about their colleagues, they're supportive of their colleagues. They say, yeah, I have smart colleagues. I can lean on. It's a very nursing thing to do, right? Think about the team, how strong it is. 
Colleagues are supportive of evidence-based changes. Again, look at this, four and five. So they think highly of their colleagues and they think they have a supportive environment, which is great. And this is the last of these <laughs> death by chart sort of slides. <laughs> Promise you. So this is from the individual. So you see how we broke it up from the organization, from the unit to the individual, so we can think about what we want to look at. So I have sufficient knowledge to write a research proposal. Bom -bom. <laughs> Disagree, right? I can understand statistical analysis. Now remember, some of our people have master's degrees and things. So it's sort of almost 50-50 if you take out the number three there. So from a practical point of view, what I'm seeing, I think it would be more disagree for that. I'm comfortable, comfortable critically reviewing research articles. Again, that was surprising to me, but I think it's the amount of masters. The other thing to this is the research scientists who I've just hired when we went through this data had said maybe they just don't know they don't know, which was an interesting sort of perspective. I have sufficient knowledge on how to find funding. I have sufficient knowledge to uh, perform independent research. Again, take out the three. I have ideas but have difficulty getting started. So you see some people agree with that. I'm interested in developing and performing research. Now this is the important thing, just like organization. You take out three, and the majority of people have an interest in this. I would attend further education. You take out three, it's overwhelming that they're interested in this. So to me, that's a really validating finding of what we want to do. So to summarize all this, we have these two things. And they're a little bit lengthy, but I'll just read them quickly. When it comes to research utilization, staff see it as their part uh, see it as part of their role and that they possess the authorities to change practice, but they record a lack of time to read research and to implement findings into practice. Despite this, staff report having knowledgeable and supportive colleagues if they were to implement research. Our second one is staff report knowledgeable deficits with developing a proposal, finding funding and understanding statistics. Therefore, staff report have an inability to act independently or start a project. Importantly though, staff are interested in future research projects and would attend further training on research. So that's what the summary I provide to my CNO, to say, why is this important? This is from your staff. This isn't me saying, oh, we need this, and this is why, or you know, research shows this in other articles. From your own institution, this is sort of the summary we have. So again, it's not overly scientific, but it's just to give you an understanding. So this is my big question, and this is the one I discussed with Nancy Lee, who's my CNO. Where do we begin? What do we do? So first of all, when we think about where it is, what we want to do, we really want to take it back to what it is nursing research is. So we, we really struggled with going around trying to define what nursing research is for Stanford. And I'm not sure if this is done at Dartmouth, but every time we have a new challenge, we say, what's our Stanford answer? How can we redo this? How can we rebadge this and call it Stanford? When truth is, there isn't a better definition than this nursing institute of nursing research one, when you think about it. And we'll go through it. Nursing research develops knowledge to build the scientific foundation for clinical practice. To me, that's all you need to say, right? That's nursing research. If it's involving the clinicians and it's in, it's in um, support of their clinical practice, then that's nursing research. To prevent disease and disability, to manage and eliminate symptoms caused by illness, and then enhance end of life and palliative care. So that's from the NINR. It's pretty broad, right? So when you say, what is nursing research? Building the capacity for nursing research, what do you focus on? Do you focus? So these are some of the things that I don't have an answer for today. Um, sort of today's sort of presentation sort of discuss you know, some of the things we're thinking about. But when we start thinking about what is nursing research, what we also want to understand is what is it to our organization that's valuable? Because if we want to know what nursing research is, 
we want to make sure that the organization respects what you're trying to do so that you can get that support. So at Stanford Healthcare, we have a vision and we have a mission statement. So our vision statement is healing humanity with science and compassion one patient at a time. So that's our mission. And our, well, that's our vision, so. Our mission is to care, to educate, and discover. So I've highlighted two words, science and discovery. So when you think about science, it's important to our organization, from our CEO down, that we're thinking about implementing research, research utilization, developing research, empirical outcomes. That's the science component of clinical care. But then in this mission, we also have this thing called discover. So discover thing, you know, means find new things, to innovate, do it differently, do it better, always be questioning your practice. So when we talk about where do we start, we know the nursing research is a very broad concept, but to our organization, it involves research and innovation, and that's what's important to them. So it's a good place to, for us to show that we're in a place that is supportive of what we want to do. Now it's up to us to, to demonstrate some value to the organization to get support. Now this is the thing, we've all gone through Magnet. So one of the things about uh, Magnet is this idea of structural empowerment. So this isn't to say that this is a theoretical, theoretical model we're working from, but it has concepts that I think are important. Now who knows Cantor's uh, theory on structural empowerment? Can anyone speak to it? No one speak to it? Everyone knows it, no one can speak to it. <laughs> anyone want to take a stab at it? There's a big breath at the back, that's the last thing you should do when you're in mind. <laughs> Any comments with it? Only that uh, theoretical framework like this is always helpful. And I think from my personal experience, taking the concepts and looking at the concepts are really helpful Beautiful. when you want to define something. That's right. That's what I've found. That's right. Another comment? I'm not as familiar with Cantor, but I can talk to you about Foucault's power and resistance in organization and change implementation. Sure. Which address a lot of these issues in the healthcare setting. Yeah. So I think that both raise good points in the sense that there's multiple models, but the important thing is these key concepts in them and how do you apply them. So from a research point of view, some of the things we want to take from this, and this is all about organizational and structural empowerment, what you can set up. From a research point of view, there's two things that really stick out to me. And this is this idea or concept, as you mentioned at the back, of formal power. So what is that concept, formal power? What are the structures in place, the job definitions, that allow you the ability to do that? The other thing is this informal power. What are those connections inside the organization you're making that it's, it's not expressly given to you as a formal entity, this is your right to do this, but informally, you've developed such a, such a, um, a history of what you're doing in collaboration that you, you are seen as someone vital to the organization. So there's these two concepts that we sort of are thinking about at Stanford, about formal and informal power structures and how we can support and build in within those things to develop what we want to do. And you'll see that these two, the formal and informal, influence access to the structures, those power structures that you need, to the resources, the information, and the support. Now, for our point of view, these power structures all lie within the School of Medicine and the university. So that's important, right? We have to work out our formal and informal power to access those structures that are not within our health system. They're over into the university. And if we can do that, obviously it leads to, and then you can see some of the outputs for the individual, but also the work effect effectiveness on the far end, what the results are. What are your achievements? What are your successes? So this is an interesting model, 
What I take from this is these concepts of formal and informal power and access to structures. Now, just want to reiterate, we're not taking this as step one and giving it to the CNO saying, we're going to do a theoretical model. It's not going to work. In practice, everything's different. So we also talk about these things called current and future state. And this is based on organization. So one of the things I would really sort of push to what's important is to understand your organization inside and out from the chief operating officer, chief executive officer, and all the physician groups who are leading in that leadership executive. And one of the things that we're doing at Stanford is the Stanford operating system. And this is the language of what we do at Stanford. So just a quick sort of rundown on what this is. It's based on lean methodology. Has everyone heard of that, lean? You guys are doing that here, obviously. Yeah, so we have an information system, which is, you know, um, you know Kaizen's 5S, those sort of things. And we have these management systems, these daily rounds, Gamba, these things that we're forced to do on a day-to-day -day basis to make a high reliability organization and to work through problems and um, move forward so that we're adding value to our patients and our customers. And it's built on these three things, the missions, the principles, and this concept called CI Care, which is really our customer service framework. So this is really ingrained to us. Our CI Care we do every month, where we go to the unit where the value is made. So we go to the clinical staff and we say, how can we support you in your role? How can we help you in your job? What are those pain points? And um, one of the good sort of ways to demonstrate CI Care is um, a month or two ago, someone went down to the parking structure and there's someone who parks the cars and said, how can I make your job easier? And they said, when customers come in, they see this big arrow and it sends them the wrong way. How can we fix this? Something as simple as an arrow. So it came back to the management system in a report out like this, and they said, if you paint that arrow differently, that makes that guy's job easier. And within a week, that arrow has changed. So the parking person says to themselves, I get listened to. That, that improves my ability to perform my job and the customer service. The principles of CI Care is really the foundation of what we're trying to lead on. So I have to understand that language of the operating system because I need to get my role put through to these people and get approval for that. Then so this is how we sort of do this. So we do a lot of these things, high, vi high visibility charts, these 360 out of view glance type of things. When we talk about conceptualizing what we, what we want to get to, our future state, we hadn't really put it down on a piece of paper. And this is basically everything we've done. So you'll see here, when I, my executive is um, Nancy Lee, she's the Vice President for Patient Care Services, Chief Nursing Officer. When she says, what is it that you have and what do you want to do? I have to explain that as efficiently as possible. And this is our at a glance of this research unit in the first couple months that we wanted to develop. So we did a, a quick assessment of what we have. So we have the core team, which is myself, a research scientist. So you see it's a research scientist. We changed from a nursing scientist. It could be a nurse scientist, but we wanted to break down that barrier with the School of Medicine and make it transdisciplinary. Now, I use that term transdisciplinary. I was originally hired as a transdisciplinary, uh, director of transdisciplinary research. Now, I found in every meeting, the first 10 minutes was, what's transdisciplinary research? What do you do? And when you have to explain yourself, that's not a good title. <laughs> when you have to explain yourself to someone who holds the power, that's a really bad title. <laughs> that's a really bad title. Because their idea of uh, transdisciplinary is surgery working with medicine, or medicine working with genetics, all the basic sciences. They are transdisciplinary. We have this. Why are you the director of that? Now, the original intent of that position was to highlight that we want to work with everyone else. 
But there was too much confusion in that, and to get rid of that conversation, we changed the title, Director of Research, Patient Care Services. You know exactly what that is, there's no confusion. Little things like that takes that abrasiveness away. We're not trying to overtake transdisciplinary. We're not trying to tell you how to do things differently. We're not trying to enter into your space. We're research for patient care services, and that's who we are. So in, in developing what we wanted to do, we had to have something to talk about. You've got to have that elevator pitch. When someone says, what, are, what is it that you want to do? Who are you? That really needs to be a clear message that people want to tack onto. So we sort of laundry listed everything we wanted to do. So you see our mission is to provide leadership in research and innovation at Stanford Medicine. <coughs> see, I say, didn't say Stanford Healthcare, Stanford Medicine. That's not, that's not an accident. We know research is done at Stanford Medicine. If we had said Stanford Healthcare, someone would stop us and say, you guys don't do research, you guys focus on practice. That's right. So we've got a help for Stanford Medicine to provide services to clinical staff, always number one clinical staff, physicians and administrators, including consultation on research design, conduct, data management and analysis, facilitating clinical research, so facilitating clinical research. So if the school is concentrating on clinical research, we're adding value to your program because you can't do clinical research without patient care services. And we're here to help you. So clinical research, coordination with university partners, information on funding sources and continuing education and research. So it's really a catch-all for everything because we still haven't defined exactly what it is we want to focus on, but we know what we want to serve, how we want to add value to the organization. So our goals is to foster a culture for clinical research based on respect, uh, inclusiveness, accountability and excellence. So very broad, but the key is to get that culture of respect in there because that's the big thing that we've got to work on. When you have nursing research, it's really building that brand, building that respect around what it is that you do and what you provide. To create research processes that are comprehensive, efficient, flexible, to collaborate on innovative clinical research that aligns with Stanford Healthcare's strategic plan. So for my CNO to sign off on it, it's got to be aligned to our plan. It's got to have operational value. So that's important for us. It also gives us some protection from the School of Medicine. If someone comes to us and says, hey, you're going to help collaborate, well, if it's aligned with our strategic plan. And that's the important thing, because we need to drive what we're working on. We can't be told. So to leverage our position within Stanford Medicine and the community to develop into the preeminent hospital-based clinical research center. So two things, Stanford Medicine, but we look beyond Stanford Medicine, because we've got one of the best communities for innovation, and we need to use that. So that's a really lofty sort of goal. And then we just provide some of the things that we're thinking about. So we have funding, we have an alumni association. We used to have a school of nursing. So 1972 it closed down. We have a strong alumni group who's now trying to support another school of nursing. And that's, um, that provides us some funding. We have some external grants. We have the research we focus on. And then we have these activities that we're currently doing. So they're listed here. So we have a conference that we're doing. We have joint conference with UCSF. We have legacy funding. So there are funding grants. We have research consultation, publishing support, presentation support. And then we've got these parking lots. These are things that everyone's talked about, but we haven't yet implemented. So for our chief nursing officer, she can quickly grab this and understand exactly where our mind's at, what, what we're thinking about, and we can add to it. And this was developed really early on. So from a research patient care services point of view, there's a couple of things we want to focus on. Education, practice, innovation, and research. And it all involves um, or influences each other. So we think about practice and education. Now this is the key that I think we've sort of struggled to to work out in a way that's meaningful for both the Stanford Healthcare and Stanford Medicine. So I want to start down the bottom here. We restructured our shared governance. So we now have one member from every unit 
in the Research Innovation Council, and then they feed off to 2,500 staff. So we have that level that we need to reach, and then above that we have practice degrees, the DNPs, the PTs, and the speech pathologists, who are really experts in research utilization. And then we have the uh, PhD people, and you see the PhD people are uh, grouped in many different areas, so medicine, critical care, quality, wound care, cancer. And then you've got the, the, the core team up the top, which is myself, Andre Valdez, who's a research scientist, whose training is in cognitive psychology with strong methodology and statistics. So that's an internal research support, but also gives me a different view. We have a lot of PhD nurses here, a lot of nursing things. To have someone from outside nursing advocate for nursing and give you a new perspective on something is really, really instrumental. So that's something that we've, we've sort of added. We've added a clinical research coordinator and we also have admin support. Now importantly you'll see these things called CE appointment. Now one of the things that our chief nursing officers work through is this formal power, when we think about that, is the ability for nurses with um, appropriate training to get appointments in the School of Medicine as clinical educators. So we have faculty in the School of Medicine and she's found faculty who are supportive of the nursing, um, the, the nursing future, or where we're off to. So Mark Cullen was one of the reviewers for the IOM's report on the future of nursing, and he's really advocating for more nurses. Uh, the, the dean for the Department of Medicine, he's also very supportive. So there's a lot of key people who are supportive of nursing, and then our dean of the whole school, he's come from Johns Hopkins with a very strong um, nursing presence. So we find in the School of Medicine, with this changeover, there's a heavy sort of support for nursing. So Nancy Lee has tapped into that to develop formal power for us. So Garrett, Mary, and myself are the first three to have joint appointments in the School of Medicine's General Medical Disciplines group. And that access to everything within the university, and we are faculty like everyone else. The key now is we have to show value to the school. What is it that we do? Everything we do is then being analyzed from a lot of different areas. So one of the things that we're thinking about doing is this practice domain approach, where the PhDs and the DNPs are focused into these practice domains that really mimic what's important to Stanford Medicine. So you'll see there's med surge, cancer, complex care, cardiovascular, traditional, uh, transitional care, and neurosciences. And we have all these scientific groups together. But we can't just get them together, you've got to do something. So we're developing a three-part model that really is there to support the development of these practice domains and this sort of autonomous um, ability to produce research. So the goal isn't to have me as the director or um, Andre, my research scientist, do the research. We want to really just give the tools for all these different groups to go out and be able to do that. So what we've developed is these three types of things. So for the clinical staff, remember we used to do an evidence-based practice program. We're moving off that and we're developing this online program which has 12 modules which takes everything from uh, what is good research, how to interpret good research, how to write an abstract, how to do research, how to do a publication from start to finish. It's not a methods course, it's not a statistics course, it's not a publishing course, it's A to B. So what we, we sort of explain this to be is, you know, if you go to a new city, we're not trying to tell you how to get from A to B by every road. What we want to do is take you on a bus, show you the sites, and drop you off at your destination, and hopefully that feeds an interest into doing more. And when you are interested in doing more, you have support. So the support is this second group, a mentor. These are the um, advanced practice personnel. And we're going to develop a, a fellowship program that we're piloting this year for the CNSs or anyone with a master's. So if you have a clinical staff member with a master's degree, 
they can come into this mentorship program, and this is more structured. So at the moment, we're going to trial it for six months, and it'll be two eight-hour days every month. I say, I say eight hours a fortnight, but they sort of rouse at me that no one understands what a fortnight is. Uh, and then this last group you'll see is this um, workshops for the PhDs. So this is the group where left to your own devices, in a clinical setting like this, you either stop doing what you're trained to do or you go somewhere else. This is the part where we have to support our doctoral degree nurses. What structures can we give them? So one, you give them the formal power, and then you encourage them to get the informal power. You build this sort of um, this, uh, scientific work group so they're encouraged to stay and support, and they grow as a team because time is a factor for everyone along this chain in different ways. So we want to do in unstructured work groups a quarterly meeting with these PhDs where we talk about what's happening on the university side, what are the changes with the IRB, how can you improve you know, what you're working on, what are some ideas, how can we help each other? Just like you do in your PhD program where you're talking about each other's phenomenon and what you want to study. So that's our education that we're developing, this three-part education to support this model that we have here. Um, so research innovation, so I'm going to tick through this a little bit quicker just because I, I think we've only got a few more minutes. But we want to focus on two things, outcomes and experience when it comes to the research that we're actually doing. So in the last year and a half, yes, we focus on the structural things, that formal and informal power, but we also do customer service. We've got to, we've got to help the staff get through these projects that they want to do. Now the first one, I was talking to Holly. Is it Holly? Yes? So this is Trish Jenkins. So this first one, intensive care for bone marrow transplant recipients. So Trish Jenkins, who is a BMT and a prior colleague of Holly's, she had eight years of data that she had collected herself just in a spreadsheet. And had never met someone who would jump in and say, this is exciting and loves data. And as a geeky sort of guy, that's what I like. So we went through and looked at the data. And I said, what is it about this data? Why do you keep it? And she said, well, I have a theory that the people we're transferring to the ICU don't need to be there, and they could have better care on the BMT unit. So I said, well, how do you make that decision? And she said, well, we developed three criteria. You either are recommended to go to the ICU because you'll benefit from it. There's a group where we don't really know, so we may send you, we may not. And then we have a third group that we definitely know should not go. But this was just something that she had in her head. So we did the data analysis, and sure enough, it was amazing that 25% of the people who um, went to the ICU on recommendations, they died, but 75% lived. In the second group, where it's iffy, iffy, Mortality was 50%. It was 50-50. And of the ones who she said should not go to the ICU because there's no benefit, nearly all of them died either on the ICU or the day after transfer, nearly 100%. So we worked out that we could avert 72 ICU days just by listening to Trish Jenkins and what she's done. So we're writing a publication on that. We're able to bring that from the clinical staff member forward to the organization to say this is what we want to present. So we're adding value by collaborating with that. I'll focus on two other ones where we add value. One's on the collaboration, this one on C. diff. And a, a physician tried to do a study with C. diff, and you really can't do a study with C. diff unless you have the nurses involved, because to be honest, who's going to be collecting that? <laughs> right? It's not the sexiest study to go up to someone and say, hey, you want to help me? It's not going to work. But he partnered with our chief nursing officer and gave the hypothesis that we are over-testing people with C. diff. We're over-testing them then we're over um, prescribing with antibiotics. So we took 300 stool samples and we went through the data and of those who were indicated testing and not indicated testing, we found there wasn't really any difference. C. diff is naturally colonized. So when you over test, you over find, you over prescribe and then that leads to huge uh, implications for the hospital. So in our chief executive meeting um, last week where we presented that, that sort of raised eyebrows. 
So for patient care services to work with you know, a physician in immunology to find out something that's very operationally linked is really important for us. So that's an important thing to be uh, invited in. So from my point of view, that's the things we're thinking about. How do we add value to the organization? How does that align with what we want to do? And there's simple things like this core track. So you may have core track here. When you put an NG tube down, it takes a, um, a sort of like an ultrasound sort of picture of placement. Well, we still then do follow-up x-rays after that. What's the use of the system? There's some head and... <laughs> it's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a ridiculous practice. Some people have up to five or six confirmatory x-rays. So what we can do is design a study with the team to show, yes, that's safe, yes, it's reliable, and yes, we can remove these x-rays. So that's something really important. When we think about what our CEO is in, um, interested in, it's the patient experience, because it's linked, patient experience and quality. So we worked with the physicians to look at melanoma survivors and provide statistical support on the physician side and help them work out how to actually write uh, what they want to get across. So that was important and led to a publication with some physicians who are really key across the institution. So we jump in and add value there. And then we do our own trials, which is um, the CNSs in the EP lab want to try our music to, for conscious sedation patients and try to increase um, the patient experience, decrease anxiety, decrease medication use there. And then there's things that the organization is interested in. They did a whole lean manufacturing work through uh, workshop in the ED, and they restructured everything with actually improved time, decreased um, holdings, and it was really important to them but they didn't know how to get that across into a journal. So we just wrote this and had it accepted in Jonah. So that's an important thing from the organization that they want to get this message out. Who can help them do that? So we're being seen internally as that group that can help with that. So that's really important. And then there's this sort of like fun stuff that in Silicon Valley is really where the value people sort of jump at. So this first one I want to highlight at the top, and this is to, to sort of get across to everyone to think outside medicine. So mechanical engineers come to me and they said, as part of our project, we need to redesign the syringe. The syringe hasn't been redesigned in 100 years. And we're from the Center of Design Research for Healthcare. We're from the Hasse Plattner Institute, which has here at Stanford and also in Germany. From my point of view, redesigning a syringe doesn't really excite me too much, but it's important to build that collaboration. They needed 30 nurses, which was also great for engaging our frontline staff in something different. And frontline staff loves having the input. So that little sort of um, uh, research study led to something different. The next thing they came forward with is, we've got this new tool. It's, it's cool. It's called Google Glass. Can we come in and find an application for it? That, that was it, as, as easy as it was. Can we come in and find an application? So we sent them to the nurses and to uh, the ORs. And from those, they had about 115 recommendations. And there's one thing nurses do, they are willing to speak up. <laughs> so from those 115, we whittled it down to one, which is in wound care. And the mechanical engineers partnered with us to use Google Glass for wound care. And at the time, we'd take an iPhone, you'd have a ruler, you'd hold the patient, you'd take a photo, you'd go to the printer, you'd print it, you'd do this, you'd put in the email. It was just a real... Um, not the best workflow when you think about it. So what we worked out with mechanical engineers is you put Google Glass on, you hold the patient, you turn your head, it zooms, you turn your head, it zooms, and then you blink, and with that blink, it goes straight up into the EMI and you're done. So something different. The next stage of that was this proof of concept. So we, they showed it in Italy and it won an award for um, a research award. We also showed it at MedEx, which is our innovation conference, and it was published in PLUS One, which is a really great open access uh, model. But from that, they said, well, how can we improve it? And the nurse come up with a digital ruler. 
So it's great, but we also have to measure the size of these wounds. So they've, in, they've got funding again through the Hasselplatner Institute for 150000 and the next stage is putting a ruler with that. So these are ideas that's completely nurse-run with the mechanical engineers and the design school. And we're adding value. So then we're presenting this at MedEx, is an international technology conference, and then the people who are attending that hear that this is from the nurses at Stanford. The other one that's just come through is from the Computer Science Group at Stanford and this Centre for Excellence in Research. And they want to do um, depth cameras and thermal imaging in the ICU to make documentation easier for nurses. So if you're suctioning, if you're doing some sort of um, action, can that be picked up and we can, we can just document that for you? So if you're rolling your patient, why do you have to go to an EMR and then say, I rolled that patient? Could it be picked up automatically? So then this third thing is the CNSs. <laughs> Do you hear that, Stanford? Um, <laughs> so the third thing is uh, in response to staff nurses. So this is in collaborations with the university campus. And then when they come forward, and is it important? Can the nurses benefit? But then there's nurses who want to do something and innovate themselves. So the CNSs who work in the clinic for uh, inherited cardiomyopathies, they had a patient that died from um, uh, cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and the family set up a foundation and said, here's $10,000 seed grant, what can you do with it? And they come forward and said, can you make some sort of education uh, model? Now, my research is in cardiac disease, and I know um, a colleague in Amsterdam who's probably one of the best at this 3D modeling on the electrical function and also mechanical function, so I called him and I said, it's not going to make you a ton of money, but can you collaborate with Stanford to support this patient's family and the nurses. So for very little money we got forward and we didn't want to just do it and make a model, we want to make it new and exciting so it added value to everyone around. So what we take is actual patient's MRI um, data, you'll see here, and then we 3D model it. So this 3D model actually moves and it's anatomically correct, but then you can also interact with it. So you can dissect it to bring out just the left ventricle, you can go any which way you want. Um, and this is just as a proof of concept to show to the foundation and to the physicians to say, will this add value to educating your patients better? And they agree it would, and we've gone on to the second phase of that. So we're responsive and collaborating outside. We're also making sure nurses' voices go the other way as well. And then when we talk about how nurses participate, if you look around, especially even around Dartmouth, People want to hear from Dartmouth nurses. So this is Siemens Healthcare working with our design group up the top, this Hassan Platinum Institute, the Centre for Design. And they're doing a day on alarm fatigue. Everyone's heard of alarm fatigue here, right? Well, Siemens Healthcare are interested in looking at alarm fatigue. Who do they need to hear from? Is it physicians? Is it nurses? Patients. So this was brought to me and said, we have a workshop with Siemens Healthcare. Can you collaborate? Yes, this makes sense strategically because we're looking at alarm fatigue. So we got our nurses involved, but also went to our patient experience group and asked for patients to participate as well because they're the ones who really have to hear it all day and every night. And this is, this is some of the feedback. These are actually the Siemens engineers. And the thing about Stanford is this concept of rapid prototyping. Just put it on paper, put it down. If it works, great. If not, get rid of it. Don't try this big brick and mortar approach and try to build it out. And this is one of the things that's sort of been perfected by this EDO group. And, which is a design group. And they, they helped with you know, Apple's first mouse and the Palm Pilot. And this design thinking has really taken over everything we do at Stanford from the new cancer center to the new hospital, designing the patient experience. It's this rapid prototyping concept. So nurses were at the forefront of something like this. So we say we want to develop this informal power. And I have 
three more minutes, which is great because I've got 48 minutes worth of content now. <laughs> um, so this informal power, how do I add value across the organization? And these are A3s. This is a lean document where it's a problem statement built on one piece of paper and it's from start to finish. So maybe I'm preaching to the choir. You guys use these? Yep, great. So our A3 that we want to look at, non-SHC personnel for research. So how do the School of Medicine researchers, the phlebotomists, come into the hospital and be able to do research? At the moment, they're requiring the nurses to do it. Well, back from the start, you'll see that we're supposed to be doing practice, clinical care. So there's a point where it's a tipping point. Is this taken away from clinical practice? Is this something that my nurse is trained to do? Are they competent to do? Do they have the time to do it? So what we've done is work with the School of Medicine, our HRVP, to develop an orientation for these School of Medicine personnel to sit within my cost center so that they can come into the hospital and do that research themselves, because that's the best practice. You know, when we have an ICU nurse who's one to two ratioed, we don't want them spending all day on one patient trying to get this protocol done, which if they don't do the protocol, there's $30,000 out the window for that, um, for that um, clinical project, which they're funded for. So that's a really important one where across the university they stop and they say, who fixed this? And they say, well, in research in the hospital did that. So they're like, oh, they're important. We need to keep them. So we're developing a center for clinical research in the School of Medicine, and we meet with them because patient care services is needed. They see that as value. Everyone has data reporting uh, problems, so we're working with quality. And Nancy Lee takes these and works from a VP's point of view through all these problems and helps us through that because they benefit the School of Medicine. The other thing we have here is this last one, which is really one of the biggest ones we're working on, is when the IRB says it's not research, it's quality or something like that, how do you get support for that? Now, in the hospital, hospitals, because it's the same at Lucille, and for the School of Medicine, there's no way to have oversight or regulation of that. So you're down a rabbit hole. You've got to go to privacy. You've got to go to risk. You've got to go to compliance. You've got to go to HR, VP, you know, the man outside with the dog. You've got to see everyone. <laughs> so what we want to do is develop this simple process where we work out of all these groups, what is it that you care about? What are those limits? Let's put them on a piece of paper. If you're within those limits, sign it, and you're done. And it will come down to a new work group we'll call the Quality um, Improvement Approvals Committee, and they can know that it's done, and they can go off into the board. So this approvals process is something that's across the whole organization that we're leading. That's how we're adding value. And the other thing that we want to do always is be visual and communicate on a drop of a hat. So when I meet with my chief nursing officer, this is the summary I give her every month. So you'll see that we have our A3s that are ongoing, and that's what we focus on, because that's where her formal power she can help with. How do we break down those A3s? Our ongoing research studies and nursing studies from the hospital's point of view, our funding, and then we have our legacy funding, education, the manuscripts we're working on, and notes that Nancy needs. Now, we want to be um, clear and we want to be able to communicate this on a drop of a hat because when people come into her office and say, what's going on, she can say, oh, this is it. I'll give you a copy. And then everyone else knows exactly what we're doing at any time. So they're seeing, wow, these guys are really busy. So that's, that's helpful. So just to summarize and... I'm one minute over, but these are some things that we've learned from our experience. Is one, to keep it simple and don't overcomplicate. So when you think about the design process, where they're saying, don't build it and then test if it works. Just, just build a haphazard paper sort of way and test it. If it doesn't work, get rid of it. You've lost nothing. Maybe a little bit of time. So keep it simple and don't overcomplicate. At the start, we had one piece of paper, which we thought that's what a center was, was like, or what we wanted. 
We used that to help guide us, but then we looked to see what worked and what didn't, and we pulled away with what didn't, and we stepped into what worked. Develop formal power, and this is where our Chief Nursing Officer, Nancy Lee, is really instrumental. So she's able to open these doors when we identify them and break them down. Develop the informal power, this is the most important piece, so collaborate, have actual those cool things that people can see across the campus, but also collaborate in a way that strategically makes sense for the next time. And then communicate widely and effect effectively, and this is the biggest thing. You know, we've probably failed 50, 60 times on most things that we try to do. But every time we fail, it leads to something better. We learn from that. So we're not afraid to sort of put something forward, have a meeting across the School of Medicine and say, hey, we were thinking about doing this. And they say, absolutely not. And we say, okay. And we step back and we say, no problem. But then we come around this way and we say, you know what we think will work? We think we should have a joint. And they say, that's a great idea. So that's what we, that's what, the concept of fail, it's not a bad concept. And then just a plug, just so you know, we have a research um, symposium coming up on the 4th of May. Afaf Malis is our guest speaker, and we're talking about transitions. So this is in joint conference with um, Lucille Packard and, um, and with Stan um, Stanford Healthcare. And that's the way we sort of join in and add in value across for nurses. Because what, what we do identify is in the hospitals, we don't collaborate well within nursing ourselves. So this is sort of a way to bridge that. Uh, it's about transitions in care, which is really, really great. And then this is our Golden Gate Bridge. And when we talk about communicating, this is my last point. You know, we're access to email. Everyone knows email. But there's a community on Twitter. And some people may say, oh, Twitter. But if you get away from that personal use of Twitter, but use it as a way to educate and, and um, you know, visualize what you're doing and use it as a promotional activity, you'll find that there's a healthy nursing community on Twitter. And especially the UK do this really well around research and innovation. So we've just started that. Stanford Nursing now has a social media work group that we started literally this week, and we're, using, we're going to be using the Stanford Nursing Twitter as our way to get across these ideas, like the Siemens work group, and then nurses participating in certain things, our shared governance sort of structures. And then LinkedIn also, for professional development, so many people contact on LinkedIn to say, you know, how can we work? And there's a lot of collaborations leading from that. So communication also is from a personal position. And with that, I'm a little bit over, so I apologize. Um, that's it. Stanford. So we have this room until 1 o'clock, so there's plenty of opportunity. For Great. Yeah. Questions? I'm waiting for someone to say, can you start again? I didn't understand you. <laughs> <laughs> I do talk quick when I get going because there's so much things to talk about. Yes, yeah, ma'am. That's not my question. My yeah. question is, how can we get you here? <laughs> <laughs> someone just mentioned this. I wonder if this is a presentation or a job application. Yes. I think one of the first things that has to happen in getting stakeholders to understand that they are stakeholders mm -hmm. is for physicians to understand that uh, investing in nursing is not a nice thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's instrumental to their work. Right. How do you nicely argue that? Can you repeat that for the folks who are... Yes. How do you get physician stakeholders to understand that they need to advocate on behalf of nursing? Not out of the goodness of their Not heart. out of the goodness of the heart. Because it is integrally related to their outcomes. Because it's related to their outcomes. So. We recently just had Linda Aiken, who you may know, um, and one of the big things that she's worked on is uh, ratios and patient ratios. You can see there's a lot of data, especially now that magnets sort of developed into this big, 
big sort of community of hospitals and looking at data related um, around magnet is that there's a lot of outcomes associated with improvements in nursing and nurse sensitive indicators and things. From an individual physician to physician basis, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the right, right group on a one-to-one -one basis to be asking about that sort of stuff. I think from the CEO to the nursing leadership group, I think it's, it's their role to sort of get through and demonstrate to the chief executives and things that um, you know, the people who hold the money, that that's the group that needs to invest in nursing and nursing practice and identify those um, people who, aren't, who are already on board with the nursing message. Because what we find, if, if you give weight and attention to people who sort of demonstrate that obstructionist, that's the key message that comes forward. So don't give them the airtime. So we find people who we want to partner with, who are key collaborators, and we, we sort of um, run that for everything that it's worth. And we make sure that that's front and center, the positive messaging between the collaborations. And to be honest, when, from a Stanford's point of view, I haven't been into a meeting where they haven't been positive about nursing and expanding nursing. We have institutional problems that sit and remain. So they'll say the university set up in their structure and the hospital set up in structure and how to do research within a non-profit organization is different. There, there's legitimate reasons why there's these um, differences that I think with further understanding you can sort of work out where you can fit into that. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there, there is a one, there, there's one way to sort of get that message through to anyone. I think the key is to sort of work out what, what works and then hit those people and really concentrate on driving that value. And if you find someone in a key leadership position, no one runs a hospital by themselves. You know? So there's, there's always a group, there's a board, there's people around them who, when they see five of their colleagues are all supportive and working on great projects, and you know, physicians have the same challenges we have when it comes to time, research, access. They need this work to be done. To have a partner in nursing come forward and say, listen, all these problems you have, we can help, we just need to be included in the conversation. That's a hugely positive message that I haven't had anyone step in and say, we don't need your help. So, question in the back? Sure, it seems like you get a lot of good energy from industry kind of capitalizing on their interest in engaging nurses in innovative technologies and models of care delivery. Any advice on Educating practicing nurses about some of that potential and how to kind of think innovatively about technology yeah. to help develop their ideas. So, so I want to be careful with this one, to not lead you down the path of, because technology and innovation in those words scare some people off. So I don't want to do that. I'm going to tell, tell a story we're doing right now. So our CNS from the emergency department found that um, we do a lot of urine cultures in the ED, so a lot of urine tests. So this isn't really, when I talk about urine, you're not thinking innovation, right? <laughs> That's the key. So that we do 15,000 of these tests a year in the ED. And what we find, about 30% of them go on to be um, cultured. Of those that 30%, 40% of those are contaminated. 40% of 30% of 15,000. So it's a couple thousand, right? So he come forward and said, this is a huge problem. I want to do a study to fix this. I said, what do you want to do? And he says, well, I'm thinking about doing something with innovation. I want to, I want to do something different. And that scares me because I'm thinking you're going to have people, you know, with an iPhone doing something. It's like, where are you going with this? But his innovation was simply, I want to use a more anatomically correct cup or maybe a different cloth white. 
So I hadn't really heard of these things. I'm like, well, where are these from? Oh, I contacted a company. One's in the UK, one's in um, the US. Okay, and what did they say? Well, they're willing to supply some product to help with this. And it's like, fantastic. So already, the cost of supplies, these companies, because it has a, an institution, I think Dartmouth has the same sort of brand identity as Stanford, they say, yes, we want to be supportive and we want to help. And if we can have a study that shows that we helped you reduce your contamination rates, we're on board. Let's do this. So in an innovation way in dealing with industry, we had a staff CNS looking at a very practical problem with a low-cost solution, engaging our community partners to say, we want to test it. Now, we make no promise that we're going to um, publish in a, in a beneficial way. They have no influence on publication. But we'll publish what we have, and we'll run a randomized controlled trial to truly test, can we reduce these? So that, that, that sort of answers that in a low-cost way. My experience with industry, you know, working with Barbara Drew with physiological monitoring, you can't really do, from a nursing's perspective, that sort of uh, research without partnering with industry. So one of the things that I'm um, involved with is this International Society of Computerized Electrocardiography, and it brings together academics the industry professionals and clinicians into this three group. So I'm really used to working with uh, industry from Philips, GE, and these sort of things. So they're, they're back to us is saying we want more interaction with those end users. So I'd always see nursing as that, the end users, and anytime you can, reach out to that company. Yeah. This is terrific, David. Thank you so much for, for making the trip. Um, <laughs> There's always a but. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the question. So I think one of the biggest challenges, certainly that we have here, is that we don't have an, an academic nursing school affiliation. Right. Um, Neither do so, we. Hmm? Neither do we. Right. So, you know, talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, right. I'm somebody who came from a very big nursing research shop that, you know, we had a team... And it was, you know, and I actually just submitted a grant yesterday, and, and it took a huge team to get this off to, right. to, to government, to get this grant done. Right. It's not, nothing any one person could do in, in isolation. Right. So when I think about the team, I think about, again, the academic nursing school. Yeah, so, so that's one of the, the huge limitations we have. We're exactly the same. Our school closed. One of the things that we're recognizing as, as operations for clinical practice, we don't have administrative or grant support within the hospital. Now, originally, they sort of stepped forward and they did some of that grants and we tried to work it out from administration, but you don't have the, the regulatory sort of compliance experience to be able to do that. So we didn't even attempt to do that. What we want to do is leverage what's already existing. And Stanford has a really strong research management group, the Institutional Review Board, the Research Compliance Office. We wanted to get in and be able to leverage them instead of trying to redevelop that within the hospital. So our big push was to get these CE positions. So in, in our example, you would be um, within the School of Medicine as a CE, and then you would work with your CE within the general medical disciplines to produce it just like any other, uh, other school. Um, but it's a huge limitation, and the focus is different. You know, when you come from an academic center, and I come from UCSF, it's about grant funding and a trajectory of research and building on that. We have to do sort of this hybrid where we have to encourage the PhD staff to continue with that excellence. We're trying to get those grants and doing that research is important, but also support the clinical practice role. So if you can find that sweet spot, that's, that's where it's at. One of the people I sort of look to is Nancy Albert at the Cleveland Clinic, and she's really 
really a good model where she does a little bit of clinical practice. They don't have that academic center, but they've developed an academic level research center within a hospital, within Cleveland Clinic. Um, so it's a good model to run through, but it's definitely, it's definitely difficult. We didn't even try to get our administration to learn how to do those grants. We just try to get access to the School of Medicine for that. So, good luck with your grant. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah? I would imagine you've seen a um, pretty nice impact on morale and retention of nurses because they see that they can contribute and have support. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So. I'm not going to claim that morale is fantastically over because of anything we're doing. You know, from an administration point of view, they've restructured everything from shared, shared governance, trying to get the nurses up front, doing a whole day of um, shared governance so they can break away from the bedside. We're really working on morale a lot. Um, what we find with the people that we work with and engage in, they, they're excited that we're doing something more than a small EBTP project that benefited eight to ten people. You know, When I came on and I listened to people's ideas, they said, yeah, I, told, I was told to wait till April to the next class. You can't do that with clinical staff. You know, if they have an idea that's beneficial now, we need to get them the resources to be able to address that. Um, so the individual people that we're working with, morale, it sort of starts a little bit like research scares me, it's, it's a bit mystical. Um, and we've broken that down in our approach of customer service. You know, we'll do anything we can to help you get through that. Um, we're not trying to make it something that's really that difficult. It's difficult in the sense that you need to do things certain ways, but we try to help you through that. So the people we're working with, we're seeing a change in morale. We're seeing that flow onto nurses when they're thinking about uh, research and we show what we're presenting and what nurses are participating in and doing the exciting stuff to get them away from the bedside. They're really excited for what's next. So we're really in the developing phase, we can't wait till we actually have a lot of the education in place, a lot of these structures in place, we have that formalized and staff start to benefit, and then, then we'll see a really, hopefully a really great change in our research. So, we're still growing. Yes, ma'am. So does Stanford have a, like a clinical ladder? I think I saw yes. with the Magna Conference two years ago, and um, I saw your nurses um, do amazing presentation Yeah. Um, quality. Um, do you guys have a clinical ladder where that's yeah. giving nurses buy-in. So this is part of when we looked at that formal power. From the clinical bedside's point of view, we also have to do that formal power and give them the ability to do research. So we do have a professional nursing development program, a ladder one, two, three, four. Um, but we don't do a great job in actually giving them the freedom or the role authority to be able to do research and innovation. You know, what we want to work at in some of the, the parking lot ideas is get in the evaluation form. We don't want you just to do research, just raise a question. So in your evaluation, how many times have you gone to your manager and questioned clinical care? Is this the best way to do it? Maybe raising five questions a year is something that we should be rewarding nurses for in that PNDP ladder. Um, do an actual research and innovation. You should be able to put that in some way and get the time and freedom to do it. If it's something successful to the organization, if you're reducing urine cultures by thousands <laughs> and preventing that and there's some money to that, we should be able to see the value in that early on and give you the freedom to keep running with that idea to hardwire it into the program. So there's formal things like that. We haven't got into doing that yet, but they're the things that we think about. Like how do we structurally improve it for clinical nurses to be able to do this as well? Uh, right at the back. You've paved the way for nurses to do a lot of research. They've conducted research. Mm -hmm. How do you manage the implementation of that research to the bedside right. 
which I think is one of the most challenging areas. That's right. So one of the things that we're starting to be really strong on is this Stanford operating system. So we do daily huddles, we do management rounds, we do check-ins, we do these active daily management things to ensure that there's sustainability for anything we do. So we'd be using that lean approach, and this is the part where this research innovation can't be a catch-all for everything. You know, it can't then be responsible for implementation and things like that. You've got to do the research, you've got to show the data, you still then have to do that evidence-based practice piece, convince the CNSs, the staff members, the, the patient care managers that this is important for their unit and they need to drive that, they need to sustain that drive and we're there to support that. Um, one of the things that a staff member came forward with in bone marrow transplant was that her hypothesis was that her patients are low on vitamin D and that's related to graft-versus-host disease. So we partnered with all the physicians and things to do a, a three-point study, a baseline 30 days and 90 day follow-up looking at vitamin D levels in these patients. And of those patients, we found like 77% had low vitamin D. So then she's worked with a physician group to now change practice so that everyone gets vitamin D testing throughout their um, program. Our job is then to go see what are the outcomes related to that. Did it bring down graft versus disease? So now we're doing an observation study for a year to, to continue to support that staff nurse. So it, it's, it's mixed, but I'd say if it's clear-cut evidence-based practice change, you really need the buy-in of the management, and we use our Stanford operating system to drive that, and that's been pretty, pretty effective. Uh, sorry, Lady in the Pink. I was curious about your budget and how that works, because, you know, the formal power piece of things. What, sorry. what does that look like from your Right, so we've changed budgeting at Stanford across the whole house. So there used to be a budget and this is what you have to meet. So now what we do is develop a bucket and then patient care services has that bucket and it's on a continual basis, it's reassessed. So there's no actual, this is your 300,000 and this is what you do. What we do is put forward and say, this is our expenses, this is what we want to do and it's our chief nursing officer working within the direct reports to try to make sure that balance of that budget going forward. If we have a, a great study um, that we need. We always look for funding first from a supportive agency and then, um, and then it will be up to patient care services. So in that study for vitamin D, the testing was about $10,000 and that was something our chief nursing officer thought was something doable and we went ahead and did that. Um, but everything's just negotiated and then we move forward. Um, did you ever negotiate with, say, the, the group that was caring for those patients to bring in some funding from them as well? Like, the, you know, the physician practice or does that happen? No, so of we, haven't, we haven't needed to, um, but from the School of Medicine, a lot of their, their research is already funded. So what we do is in patient care services, they get charged a bed rate or the, as part of their budgeting to use the resources, and we can pair up with that but we're not interested in money or making money. We just want to cover the resources right, for that. So right. if it's funded research, it's covered. And from a patient care services, a lot of the costs associated with research were all funded in our positions anyway. So those typical funding issues are gone. It's really just resources and support. So if you're doing a lot of testing like vitamin D, we need to work out with the lab, with the research costs, because we have research deductions, what that cost is, and then we'll cover that from our cost center. But I was thinking, like, if I was the nurse manager on the unit and I have a budget for my staff, how do I... So that is a negotiation. So that they'll come to us and we'll speak to our chief nursing officer and we'll say, you know, E1 want to implement this, they'll run a variance, can we make this work? And if it's something that's strategically aligned and we want to do that, we will say go ahead and do that. And then we have a finance administrator who will work with them to do it. 
um, but they're not held down to budgets as, as okay. rigorously so as. So it sounds like you can be creative with definitely kind of meshing a bunch of definitely. Then we're creative in the sense that um, the physician group had a, an outpatient study that needed monitoring that we couldn't do in the outpatient setting, so we had to do it in an inpatient setting, free up a nurse to do that. Um, that sort of collaboration where the physicians come in and say this is what we're budgeted for, we say this is how we can operationalize it in the inpatient, and then we support the patient care manager into running a variance against that. So okay. it's all with the chief nurse and officer, and that's why it's really integral when she has a 360 view, she knows everything we're doing. Yeah. What was the time frame to, to build that program? I'll be cautious to say it's not built. <laughs> um, I started in late 2013. And then it probably took me about four to five months to realize that you can't just step in and do research at this place. You, you need to develop something else. And then the idea of a center and thinking about a center, could that work? And initially what we are come against is if you put the bricks and mortar and plant the flag and say, this is our center, um, a lot of eyes are on, but you also have to quickly have results. So what we found is that you know, in the idea of quick prototype development, being ready to fail, that's not our best approach. So what we try to do is develop internally those power structures. You know, get in, you know, if, we, if I came in on the third month and said we've got a center for research, but from the university's perspective, we couldn't even do research. So it took us till mid-April 2014, so it probably took 10 months or so after I was there to be able to do research with the School of Medicine and open that door. Once that was open, a whole life sort of opened up and we have access to. So it, it's not built, we're still going through that, but it was only up until April last year was the first time we could do the research. From then on, it's sort of really flourishing on, on what we can do, and there's no limits to what we can do. When we propose a randomized control trial of something, we can do it because we're PI with faculty. Um, so I, I would say a, a big turning point was really d developing the position of a research scientist and opening that up to any discipline. And I think from a patient care services position, um, when you're supporting nursing, but also physical therapy, social work, you're really sending the message that you are supporting everyone, not just nursing. But in the School of Medicine, it also sends a message is that you're not in a silo. You're not just working in nursing. You're really working with lots of disciplines, and you're really trying to get out there. And so we developed this research scientist position, and that's been really helpful to have you know, someone with experimental psychology sit there and say, it just sounds dumb. Do you guys always do this? And, <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> yes, we do. And, uh, and it's just that different sort of, of dissenting voice sometimes is something that really crafts it. Um, and that's been helpful. Uh, it, it, was, it was a bit of a, um, a culture shock to nursing to sort of say, I'm opening up a research scientist position for anyone. Could be a nurse, maybe not. And then it took a little bit to get used to it. But getting him onto the units and letting the nurses teach him about nursing allows the nurses to not feel like, oh, here comes Dave, he's got a PhD, he's a nurse, he knows everything, to someone who's, oh, he doesn't know what I do. I better share that with him. And it's that collaboration that people are really like, you know, coming to Andre to say, help me with this, and they know that he's helping with the design, the experiment, and not trying to tell him how to be a nurse. So that's, that's a subtle message. But it's really demonstrating that we're thinking about those clinical staff, you know, because they're the experts of what they're doing, you know. They're the ones adding the value. They're the ones doing things. My job is really customer service to support them, and that's how we see it. Yeah. Questions? Head nod? <laughs> Question? No? I really want to thank you. Thank you.
And thank Bridget Logan for finding you and bringing <laughs> you to us. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you, Dr.